Welcome to a future for us. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I am your host, Joelle Alexandria, and I conduct audio documentaries, interviews, and stories as it pertains to us in our modern world. Check out our Instagram, a future for us, and for inquiries, email a future for us 99 at gmail.com. If you want to get to know me a little more, follow my public account at joelle.a.alexandria, J-O-E-L-L-E, and my Twitter at wjoelle. As a Christmas present to all the listeners, we have a very special episode in store today called Save the Whales, Climate Change versus the Canadian Government. I will be sitting down with researcher and student journalist Mary Cunningham to speak about the endangerment of the North Atlantic right whale that inhabits the Bay of Fundy between Canada's Nova Scotia and New Brunswick provinces and touches the U.S. state of Maine. And naturally, this topic coexists with climate change and what the Canadian government is doing about it. Here's what Mary has to say on the matter. Living in the Bay of Fundy has allowed me to see firsthand the incredible natural wonders of the ocean, including the North Atlantic right whale, one of the most endangered whales on the planet. As of 2018, there were only 409 North Atlantic right whales estimated to live on the entire planet. Since childhood, I observed the action the government has taken to protect right whales. That action is currently non-existent. Welcome to part one. Hello and welcome to A Future for Us. I have with me student journalist and researcher. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Mary Cunningham. Uh, I study at University of Toronto Scarborough. Uh, I am studying journalism as a major and minoring in public law. Uh, I'm really interested in science journalism. Um, and that's kind of what direction I'm heading in currently. So that's how um, I got involved in in this article. Yeah, and thank you for coming on to the show, Mary. I'm so excited to have you here. I loved your research paper. And today we're going to be talking about the threat of extinction for the North Atlantic right whale, climate change, and what the Canadian government is doing about it. So Mary, would you like to read the introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Living in the Bay of Fundy has allowed me to see firsthand the incredible natural wonders of the ocean, including the North Atlantic right whale, one of the most endangered whales on the planet. As of 2018, there were only 409 North Atlantic right whales estimated to live on the entire planet. Since childhood, I observed the action the government has taken to protect right whales. That action is currently non-existent. So what specifically makes this topic of the, the extinction or the threat of extinction for the North Atlantic right whale? Why does it resonate with you? Um, it resonates with me mostly because of personal experience. Um, being a kid growing up on the East Coast, you always went whale watching. You would hear presentations in science class about right whales. And so it kind of is a very real part of my 
um, kind of East Coast culture growing up as a kid on the Bay of Fundy. So it definitely matters to me, the North Atlantic right whale, because I've seen them and I know the impact they have on tourism and on, you know, fishing ecoculture. So it is definitely important to me because of personal experience. Is there a large fishing culture in the Bay of Fundy? Yeah, absolutely. It's huge. It's probably one of our primary um, economic structures. Um, fishing of like various types, um, small vessel fishing, which is what my father does, um, and large vessel fishing, corporate fishing. Um, there's fishing on the water, on shore. So it's definitely a huge, huge element of our economy. One interesting thing about the Bay of Fundy that um, affects fishing and affects our ecosystem is um, our tides, uh, which are kind of fascinating. We have 30-foot tides, um, which are amazing to see because basically every six hours, the water, the shore level comes up 30 feet. Um, and that's like 30 feet as in from lowest point to highest point, which when you look at it across the shoreline can be anywhere between one or two kilometers. And so these huge tidal changes affect fishing, they affect um, wildlife, they affect, they affect like the actual fish in the bay. Um, so the tides are a very interesting part of the Bay of Fundy. Um, currently, right now, we're about two weeks into the lobster season which is definitely a huge part of New Brunswick economy, especially um, when you live directly on the coast. Um, so the season has just begun, and that means that you can see um, lights along the shore uh, really early in the morning when the tide is high. Um, and that's how you know that it's, it's lobster season because you can see um, all of the boats out along pulling up their traps and checking to see um, how their catch is. So it's a very relevant time of year to be talking about right whales in the fishing industry because um, we have just begun our winter season. Wow, that sounds like a beautiful scene. Wow. So It is. Yeah, what is the ultimate goal of this topic? Um, for me, it is, there are kind of a few goals. Um, the first one, of course, is always to bring awareness to climate change, to right whales. Um, I can't say for certain, but I feel like a lot of people who don't live in the Bay of Fundy probably don't know a lot about right whales. They're not quite as popular as pandas or koalas or the kind of endangered species that you hear about a lot. Um, and of course, climate action is always something that needs more awareness and needs to be talked about more. So that was my primary goal. Um, but my secondary goal was also just to bring awareness to the fact that um, a lot of times the fishing industry gets a really bad name when it comes to um, animal preservation and um, and basically like any sort of climate preservation and fishing preservation, they often get a bit of a bad rap for um, being greedy, just over harvesting, things like that. But um, throughout this project and this article and the research that I've done, I've really come to the conclusion that um, it's actual fishermen and people who are part of the industry who are doing most of the work toward protecting right whales and maintaining their their fishery through um, preservation. And I think it's really important to to help people be aware that fishermen aren't the bad guys and that um, we can de definitely 
that's where I got a really great coexistence and really great cooperation between animal preservation and the fishing industry, which is central to the East Coast. So why should the average citizen, citizen care about the right whale? I think, I mean, every, every animal should be cared about in some way or another because they are a very central part of the ecosystem. Any animal is part of a food chain, and if the food chain isn't maintained and protected, then there can be devastating impacts that we don't even initially recognize. So that's kind of a surface level um, importance of protecting right whales. But also, I think knowing about right whales and what action has been taken to protect them is kind of a wake-up call for people, because when you realize that there is such a present issue that there isn't a lot being done about it. It can help you to think critically about how many issues in Canada um, aren't really being talked about, aren't being worked on, aren't being developed. Um, and it just is a way and a, and a learning opportunity to show people um, that there are important things that happen in our oceans that we need to take care of. So one thing you mentioned before is that you wanted to shift the blame from the fishermen who take part in this ecosystem for the economy. So who's to blame for the endangerment of the North, of the North Atlantic right whale? Well, if you go back decades, um, it is fishermen. The actual name right whale, it comes from um, them being the right whale to hunt. So hundreds of years ago when there was a huge whaling industry and there were no regulations on the whaling industry, um, that is how right whales initially became um, endangered. They continue to be endangered because of their um, reproductive habits, basically. Um, so they mature really late in life. Um, they only reproduce every few years, and it's usually only a couple of calves at a time. So they reproduce at a really, really slow rate. They have a low female population, and that has kind of affected them coming back in addition to um, climate change, migration changes, and deaths caused by vessel strikes and um, deaths that we don't know the reason of, and the occasional entanglement death as well. So technically, initially, it was fishing that led them to become endangered. Um, but like I said, there are many factors that leads them to having a very slow um, recovery. But the primary reason is that the government is a lot of talk and not a lot of action. Um, so they have created potential recovery plans. They have created suggestions for legislation um, to protect right whales. But at the end of the day, most of the action that has been taken has been exclusively on a voluntary basis by fishermen and by large fishing vessels adjusting their travel routes. So as of 2020, they have made some regulations um, regarding right whale protection, but the majority of action taken by the government has all been voluntary suggestions. So in your findings, you mentioned that the legislation the government provided for the fishermen was performative. Can you go into that in more depth? And which legislation was that? Yeah, so um, in February of 2020, um, there was legislation released by the government regarding right whales. 
um, and that legislation included um, closing of specific lobster fishing zones if there were right whale spottings during the season and it outlined how long those closures would be during those seasons. Uh, and in addition to that, they also created legislation um, regarding putting tags on lobster gear. Um, so for a bit of background on lobster gear and what this legislation means, essentially, if you look at a lobster trap, the simplification of it is there's a large trap at the bottom of a really long line, which is what actually catches the lobster. And then you have a really, really long line because this trap is going all the way down to the ocean floor and the line has to re reach all the way up to the top. So there's a really long line that has a floating buoy at the top of it. And in each lobster fishing area, the buoy is a specific color based on the vessel so that when you're out fishing, you can identify which traps belong to you so you don't accidentally haul somebody else's trap. So that's essentially the outline of a basic lobster trap. Um, the new legislation regarding that is tagging each of the lines. Um, so the tags are a certain color based on um, what the industry is. So there's a color for lobster fishing versus another type of any other type of fishing. Um, it's also based on what lobster fishing area you are inside of um, and what country they're from, basically. And so um, this color that you put on your ropes, you have to put it in three places on your line um, so that if the rope leads to entanglement of any type of whale, they can look at the tag and basically identify where the trap came from. Mm -hmm. So this legislation I find performative. And um, when I spoke with my dad about this, who has been doing these tags, also said that it's, it's mostly performative because it's basically a way of being able to blame the majority of whale entanglements on U.S. fishing vessels and being able to prove that Canada isn't doing the majority of the, the entanglements. So the theory behind this is basically that the U.S. lobster fishing season is very different because it goes year-round um, and they use a lot more traps than Canadian fishermen do. And so this, because of this difference, it basically leads a lot of fishermen to believe that the majority of entanglements are occurring in the United States because there's just more gear for whales to potentially get entangled in. But by putting tags on the lines and requiring it by law, the Canadian government can officially remove themselves from blame when there's an entanglement and say, the majority of whale entanglements are happening because of the United States and therefore it's not our problem. So that's really performative because it really isn't doing anything to help the lobster industry. It's not doing anything to help right whales specifically. Um, it just feels like a political move to prove that Canada is doing what it can and that the rest of it is America's problem. Um, so there's just a lot of different ways to look at it. Eventually, theoretically, the research will be able to be used to say, well, this is the area where entanglements happen and how can we prevent it? But if it is mostly American traps entangling whales, then Canada won't be doing anything with that information. So it's just a lot of work for the fishing industry. Um, hundreds of hours worth of work to really just prove whether or not whales are getting entangled here or across the national boundary line. Wow. So I, I, I really like your piece 
because it's an interesting take on something that is largely critical of the government, especially the Canadian government. And I think to the rest of the world, Canada is the beacon of innovation and social change. But in this piece, it's very different from how we see it in media. Because in media, we always see climate change as something that's private, something that's like on the individual, you know? So is there anything that makes the situation unique? Or do you believe that the media just uses this narrative of it's it's you who has to reduce your carbon footprint, or it's the corporations who produce all, all this pollution, but instead it's not holding the proper organizations responsible. So I, I believe that it is important that individuals take action to reduce their carbon footprint. And I think the media uses that because this impact the media has is on its audience, which is just regular everyday people. So that's the primary reason why I believe the, the media focuses on our individual impact. But I do believe that the government is supposed to be of the people, for the people, by the people. And so the action that the government takes should be for the best of its citizens, and it should be based on the opinions and values of its citizens. Um, studies have shown that the majority of Canadians are in support of climate action, including carbon taxes and things like that. But the primary amount of carbon um, in our atmosphere comes from corporations. And so that means that the majority of carbon tax and carbon pollution limits should be put on corporations. But I think that our government, like any government across the planet, is controlled by where the money come from, money comes from, and where the power comes from. And in any capitalist society, most of the power and money belongs to corporations. And so as long as government, which is supposed to be for the people, is actually for protecting corporate greed and corporate needs, then climate action will never truly achieve what it is supposed to and it will never be successful. And that's kind of where I was going with this article and where my research took me is basically that the government is no longer representing the needs and the good of the people because it is unwilling to take risks and to make the sacrifices it requires to achieve what is required of them. Yeah, I definitely 100% agree with that. And there have been so many documentaries and just articles exposing this in YouTube or on YouTube, whether it's making bribery legal with the contribution of campaign funds through private interests or just how the trend over the years have been less and less towards listening to the people than to listening to lobbyists who actually fund many many re-election campaigns in the in, in their own self-interest so yeah it's definitely something that's happening and something that we can no longer ignore you and you definitely make a good point. Um, it's interesting comparing, like, American issues with Canadian issues because Canada has a very different system because we don't have lobbying and we don't have the same type of um, monetary campaigns. So it's easy to think that we don't have the same type of um, issues where where political leaders are 
affected by other people. We don't really, we aren't really quite as aware of how they can be influenced by money and by corporation. But just because the systems are different doesn't mean that there isn't still that same influence in Canada. And I think it's important that people realize that American isn't the only capitalist country that is completely controlled or largely influenced by corporations. And it's it's really important that Canadians are aware that we have a lot of the same issues that the United States has, even if our government is built differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to clarify for my audience that I, yes, I'm an American, and I do tend to have an American point of view on these things. And I think a lot of Americans tend to believe that everything that happens happens everywhere else but it's it's something that we have to really look at and there's definitely a spectrum with what different countries deal with and not everything's the same so i see here that you are working with dr moira brown is that how you pronounce it yes dr moira brown works with the campobello whale rescue team in the bay of fundy And so I'm just going to take a quote from your article, and it says this. She said, obviously the lobster fishery is super important around here in the Bay of Fundy. It really is an economic driver, and it's not just the value of the lobster the fishermen catch. It's the buyers, the processors, all the way down the line. And you want to stress one term that your father states, which is coexistence. The lobster fishery has to be protected as much as the right whales. We can't sacrifice one for the other. The lobster industry cares about the right whales as much as scientists do. So the fishermen, the engineers, and the scientists know this. They know the detrimental effects of the loss of the right whales, and the government doesn't? I think it would be impossible for the government to not be aware of how these things are an issue and how action needs to be taken. I think it's just easy to ignore, um, especially in a place like the Bay of Fundy, because it is a small area. It's not an issue that a lot of the Canadian population has heard of. And so it's highly unlikely that unless there is a large amount of public outcry regarding any issue in Canada that there is going to be any kind of real action towards solving the issue by the Canadian government. Okay. And does the Canadian government as a whole, or at least Ontario, have a history of being slow when it comes to creating change for the environment or positive change? The Canadian government is very slow at making any change. Um, regarding the government at all. Um, they were very essential to a lot. Thank you for listening to part one of Save the Whales, Climate Change versus the Canadian Government, featuring researcher and student journalist Mary Cunningham. To listen to part two and to listen to other episodes, continue streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.